Okay. Thank you all so much for coming. So I wanted to uh, sort of, as a continuation of our Eretz Yisrael Shirim, uh, concurrently to... Uh, Concurrent to my learning in preparation for those shirims, I was reading um, a section uh, in a sefer called Shivchei Haran, which I'll explain in a moment. And the section, the second chilek, the second portion of Shivchei Haran, deals with Rabbi Nachman of Breslov's journey to the land of Israel. And, uh, and the more that I started reading, I said, well, this is exactly what our shiurim uh, about Israel are trying to drive at, the specialness, the unique qualities of the land of Israel. So I wanted to try something a little bit different, which was, uh, rather than looking at various different sources, to really dive into uh, one text. It's a story. It's a, an amazing, it's an adventure. Actually, it's entertaining in its own right, in the sense that it's just, uh, it's filled with all kinds of uh, near-death experiences and, and, uh, and close, close calls and uh, a picture of the the land of Israel in 1798 at the turn of the uh, of the 18th century, uh, which itself is quite special, and uh, it also, I believe, more than anything else, it gives us a great insight into who Rabbi Nachman of Breslau was. So I think it's in order. Uh, uh, even though I'm sure everybody knows, I think it's in order to talk a little bit about what kind of a man Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov uh, was born in 1772. His mother was Fega, her mother was Udol, and her father was the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. And um, Rabbi Nachman, as a great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, obviously enjoyed a special place of privilege amongst the nascent Hasidic movement, but Rabbi Nachman himself uh, was a, a tremendously... Uh, preternaturally, spiritually inclined individual. Rabbi Nachman himself tells us about uh, how he starts to recognize his creator, how he would pay uh, his malamed uh, extra three coins in order to teach him more Gemara. Rabbi Nachman gets married at 13 years old to Sasha, and uh, he already on his first day uh, acquires, the first day of his marriage, acquires his first chassid, a person by the name of Shimon, who I believe is the chassid that goes with him on this journey to the land of Israel. Uh, Rabbi Nachman is uh, unique, I think, in the annals of all of Jewish history for the self-reflection and the self-awareness that's contained in his writings. Rabbi Nachman deals... Uh, deals with so many different topics, but it would be hard to talk about him without talking about Rabbi Nachman's discussions of tefillah and the role of tefillah uh, in, in, uh, in conjunction with Torah, tefillah as Torah, uh, studying tefillahs and turning tf- Torah into tefillah, turning our intellectualized parts of Judaism into something that is also uh, a theurgical element, also something that comes in contact with God. And uh, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov also is not afraid uh, to detail for us the struggles uh, that he goes through and the spiritual doubts and the uh, the spiritual struggles that he goes through in ways that uh, I think we're heretofore almost uh, um, not seen at all. Uh, the kind of frankness with which he uh, discussed certain spiritual topics is is quite amazing. And the truth is, is that Rabbi Nachman said that almost nothing of his would have gotten to us if not for his faithful Talmud, Rav Nassim of Breslov. Rav Nassim of Breslov, whose yurtzeit is this evening. Rav Nassim Sternhardt of Breslov uh, came to Rabbi Nachman in the last eight years of Rabbi Nachman's life. Um, and, and Rav Nassim, besides transcribing Rabbi Nachman's major works, like Likut Moran Kama Vitinyana, which is Rav Nachman's masterwork, uh, Rav Nassim really saw to it that every single utterance of Rabbi Nachman was, uh, was, was written down and saved for posterity, uh, up to and including a full commentary on all of the Shulchan Aruch called Likut Alachos, which is less a commentary on Shulchan Aruch and more a presentation in a systematic fashion, well, systematic according to the Shulchan Aruch, of, a, of, of Rabbi Nachman's Torah, the, the entire breadth of it. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Rav Nassim uh, himself, as we'll see, uh, records the journey 
that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so everything that we're going to be reading is coming from the hands of Rav Nassim. Um, so it's a very special treat that we're able to talk and to learn about Rabbi Nachman through Rav Nassim's writings on the Yartzeh of Rav Nassim of uh, Breslov. And, uh, and, and it, again, it bears repeating almost nothing from Rav Nachman be preserved for posterity, uh, if not for uh, Rav Nassim and his almost complete, um, his almost complete bittel, his almost complete nullification before his Rebbe and, uh, and his complete fealty for Rav Nachman. I mentioned the last eight years of Rav Nachman's life. Rav Nachman dies in 1810. He's born in 1772. He dies at the age of 38. Rabbi Nachman's life, as he describes in many places, was filled with suffering, travails, and yisurin. Um, Rabbi Nachman dies of tuberculosis in the town of Uman, which he says in the last year of his life is a good place to be buried amongst the Maskilim. There had also been many Jews that were buried in a mass grave there as a result of a pogrom. Um, but uh, all of what I'm saying about Rabbi Nachman is, is I think, um, superfluous, because even though we're talking about one of the greatest spiritual figures in all of Jewish history, whose lasting, um, whose lasting spiritual edifice lasts until this very day. We see a massive pilgrimage to his place of rest in Uman every Rosh Hashanah and really uh, throughout the year now. Um, but Rabbi Nachman's teachings, a testament to the force of his teaching is that they still speak to any broken person, to any spiritual seeker, to anybody who struggles in their avodat Hashem, anybody that struggles in their relationship with God, or anybody that seeks a more profound or a more... Um, I would say a more sophisticated uh, kind of relationship with Hashem, although I think Rabbi Nachman would, uh, it's true the word sophistication over here, he wanted us in our relationships with God to be above all else, Pashut, the simple faith, the simple connection with God. But almost everything that Rabbi Nachman uh, teaches us, I think, and this is why we're going to be doing this, besides what it tells us about Eretz Yisrael, everything can be found in the story of his journey. The journey to the land of Israel, which occurred in 1798, is, um, is, is maybe the pivotal moment in Rabbi Nachman's life. Uh, Rabbi Nachman famously tells Rav Nassim, he says, really anything that I said or anything that, uh, that I gave over before my travels to Israel should really just be disregarded. Uh, it's almost worthless, and uh, truth be told, much of it was destroyed. We do have uh, one uh, small, uh, it's an alphabetical list of aphorisms that come from Rabbi Nachman called Sefer Amidos, um, which are cryptic, one line Liners, um, that Rabbi Nachman uh, wrote or formulated in his youth, but really everything that we have, Rabbi Nachman said, anything that we have from before his trip to Israel is uh, should not really be uh, uh, should not really be counted. It doesn't really make uh, it doesn't really make a difference compared to what he taught after his trip to the land of Israel, which again was a pivotal moment in Rabbi Nachman's life. Um, I did want to say over one uh, piece in Sichos Haran, um, which I think is the message of the whole uh, of the whole journey. But I'll put it. A, I'll say it like this. I'm going to give away the punchline. The journey to the land of Israel, even though we're going to read in in sharp detail a travelogue and an amazing story. Um, the most important thing about the journey to the land of Israel, I think it's safe to say, and there are uh, scholars and, and, uh, of Breslov, both within Breslov and in the academy, who believe that uh, upon a close reading of uh, the tale, is that it seems quite clear that the point of the journey was not to reach the land of Israel. The point of the journey was to undergo the journey itself, which becomes one of Rabbi Nachman's most important teachings, which I believe, hopefully, uh, Ezra Hashem, when we finish going through the story, we'll be able to read that one Torah in Sichosran, which is a collection of shorter uh, sayings and teachings of Nachman that uh, will see the, the depth of the teaching that Rabbi Nachman says that it's the process. It's not necessarily the destination that's undergoing the suffering of the journey, undergoing the pain and the effort that it takes to get to that place and what that means in Avodat Hashem, not just in going to the land of Israel, but in everything we do 
for the work of God. So we're just going to jump right into it. I'm going to read uh, rather swiftly, but we're going to pause at uh, different points. And again, remember, this is a story, this is a retelling, although it seems there are two versions of the story. It's the last thing I'll say. There's two versions of the story. One of the, one of the versions of the story occur, uh, appears later. It's a later recension that appears in a sefer called Chaye Moran. And the version that we're going to be learning is, uh, I would say, the more literary version with some embellishment and some literary flourish, but appears in the sefer called Shivchei Haran, which appears in uh, this... Um, I lost my Sichos uh, Ran. I'm really disappointed about it, so I'm using my pocket version. But um, disappointed is... Uh, yeah like broken over it but uh, but uh, but it's they're usually printed together Shivchei Aran and Sicha Saran so this comes from Shivchei Aran so this is assumed to be the earlier recension and I'm going to uh, even though I will intersperse with some scholarly studies there are two major books that were written one person wrote a book called Masal Hasod which was written by an Israeli scholar a book length treatment of the journey and then there's also a, a famous essay from uh, Professor Arthur Green Art Green that appears in his uh masterful biography of Nachman called Tormented Master, which I highly recommend uh, for anybody that's uh, willing to jump into an academic treatment of such an important and monumental figure. Academia has a way of sort of bringing things down to earth, and Rabbi Nachman, it's hard to, uh, to quantify and to bring down to earth like that, but, uh, but Green does do an amazing job. Seder HaNesiyah Shalola Eretz Yisrael. Quote, and if anything is unclear, and this is meant to be done together, if anything's unclear, stop me. If I'm moving too fast, stop me. Uh, I promise that we'll stop at all the good points and I'll point out uh, certain things. But if you see something as well, share it with the crowd, share it with the group, and, uh, and let's, uh, let's jump into Rabbi Nachman. Kodim shenasel Eretz Yisrael haya Before Rabbi Nachman decided to go to Eretz Yisrael, so he stopped in a place called Kamenetz. This is none other than Kamenetz Podolsky, which was a town, well, we'll see in a second, which was a very special town because it had a little bit of a dark and mysterious history when it came to the Jews that lived there, or didn't live there. The travels of Rabbi Nachman to Kamenetz was a great wonder. He got up from his house immediately and said, I have to go, I have a journey in front of me. So he traveled from his home to the Derech of Mezbuz, which was where Rabbi Nachman was, be- was born, and uh, he actually goes to visit his parents. I guess before any big journey, you go and you visit your parents. He said, I myself am not quite sure exactly where it is that I'm going to. And when he arrived in Mezbuz, which of course was, uh, was one of the places that the Baal Shem Tov settled in, and one of the epicenters of the uh, expansion of early Hasidut, we're talking still in the early generations of Hasidut, in Mezbuz, he received a revelation or a communication from a Panhai, that it is time for him to go to Kamenetz. And so he went. And he traveled, already Rabbi Nachman's name was starting to be made for himself, already Rabbi Nachman was starting to be known for his tremendous erudition and Torah scholarship and I had mentioned that already at, at, at the age of 13, he already gets his first chassid, he already is somebody that's starting to make a name for himself in the nascent Hasidic movement, but he travels in a very simple fashion like simple people without any publicity without any sort of lording over other people, just a quiet journey even though he was already quite well known in the world. He warned the people that traveled with him. Don't tell anybody where we're going. 
Nobody knew where he was traveling. So he traveled in a hidden fashion like one of the merchants. Now, I'll pause at this point to mention that there was a concept in Europe at the time amongst many great rabbis called Prabhagalas. Prabhagalas, we see that it wasn't just a Hasidic thing. We have stories that tell us that the Vilna Gaon did such a thing, that great rabbis and very prominent, like undercover boss almost, like great rabbis would go ahead and they would travel and be amongst the simple individuals, the simple people, the hoi poloi, and they would see how they are. This actually is a theme that crops up a lot in Hasidic stories and in Rabbi Nachman's stories that we see the king traveling amongst the Pshuteyam. We see the king garbed like a regular peasant going amongst the peasants. So of course, uh, what Art Green points out is that, and I think a beautiful point, he says that Rabbi Nachman became very famous really as one of the first <coughs> Jewish storytellers. And Rabbi Nachman certainly towards the end of his life became famous for his wondrous stories of far off lands and princes and princesses and weddings and pits and all kinds of wonderful, fantastical things that communicated very deep ideas in Torah. As Rabbi Nachman says, now I'm going to tell stories. And those stories contained some of the deepest Torah that he wanted to communicate. But it's amazing that in this story of the trip to the land of Israel, we see Rabbi Nachman almost acting out one of these stories in his own self. He becomes almost a character in one of his own tales. That's, uh, that's I think, a beautiful insight that Rabbi Nachman really is acting out part of what will be his teachings later on in his own life. And they arrive at Kamenitz. The Az, at that time, no Jew is allowed to dwell or to live in Kamenitz. And certainly not even to rest in the city at that time. No Jews were allowed to live, for sure, in Kamenitz. And furthermore, they weren't even allowed to stay there overnight. The Jews that would work in Kamenitz, so they would sleep outside the city, and then they would come in. This was a very common thing in Europe at the time, that book that I mentioned on Shabbos uh, by the Tefillah L'Shlom Um The Pity of It All, The History of German, that Jack gave me, The History of German Jewry. So it talks about many cities in Germany that permission was granted and permission was rescinded. Permission was granted. My own family, for example, apparently our name was really Diamond. And then there was a certain Rosenfeld many generations ago that was the first person that was allowed to live in the town, but he had to change his name to Rosenfeld. I guess that sounded more Polish at the time. Now it's super Jewish. But the idea was is that people had to receive permission. Many cities had bans on Jews entering them. They would enter the city. They could stay all day. And at night, all the Jews had to leave the city. Nobody was allowed to stay there, as is well known. So Rabbeinu goes and he enters into the city with one person. Now, I just want to point out at this juncture that we are not going to know throughout the entire story who it is, which disciple it is, that actually goes with Rabbi Nachman on the journey. We know from other sources, because in the second recension of the story, it is mentioned that the name of the Chassid was this Shimon, this fellow Shimon, but here Rabbi Nachman is with two people, and it is not Shimon that enters in with him. Uh, it also is uh, important to say that even though we are reading from Rav Nassim of Breslov's hand, Rav Nassim of Breslov doesn't come in contact with Rabbi Nachman until much later on. So this is be- being written many, uh, many years after the fact. Remember, Rav Nassim only meets Rabbi Nachman in 18. Which is eight years before Ibn Achman's death in 1810. So he continues and says, he goes in with one person, she ate him in that ear. Oh, I skipped the line. So the night, night falls. So Ibn Achman says, You leave. 
And Rabbi Nachman undergoes the incredibly dangerous task. He says, Rabbi Nachman defies the edict and stays in the city throughout the night. And he told that person, He says, Tomorrow come back and you're going to find me. Rabbi Nachman stayed in the city that night under great danger. Who knows what could have happened if they discovered this Jew in Kamenetz Podolia throughout the night. And nobody, nobody knows what he did there. So a word on this in a moment. So the person came back and found him. And they went in from house to house. They made some sort of, uh, they convinced people to let them into these houses. <laughs> In some places he asked them to give them like a little bit of branf and a little bit of strong drink, schnapps. There were many houses. Nobody knows what the point of Rabbi Nachman's going into these houses to make a l'chaim there was. However, after this mission, after this night, and then the following day of making l'chaims in Kamenetsk, so then all of a sudden Jews were permitted to go back in. So this I saw in uh, Art, Green, Art Green's book, even though Rav Nassim doesn't tell us exactly what goes on here, a little bit of history is in assistance. Kamenetsk was the site many years earlier of the famous debates with the Frankists. The Frankists were led by one Jacob Frank, who was a messianic pretender, and he led, uh, I would say, if you could get more radical than the Sabbateans, so the Frankists became a completely syncretistic group, and debates were held there. They had a certain bishop that was their protector, and it seems that it was either Hillel Zeitlin writes and says in his essay on Rabbi Nachman, he says that Rabbi Nachman was there trying to convince Frankists or these Jews who had already maybe a generation uh, lived past those debates and had completely been absorbed into the Christian milieu as Frankists to try and convince them to do tshuva, to try and bring them back. Green points out that there's an issue that we don't know, we don't have testimony of Frankists actually living there. He says that at the very least we do see a tzaddik undergoing what, uh, what any tzaddik does, which is to make tikkunim, to go into the houses that were formerly the places that Jews lived, maybe even the site of the debates with the Frankists themselves, organized by the bishop. Legend has it that it was Rabbi Nachman's great-grandfather, the Balshemtov himself, who debated the Frankists in uh, Kamenetsk Podolia. But be that as it may, it could be that what's undergoing the great secret here to a certain degree, could be that Rabbi Nachman was going to rectify uh, the, uh, the terrible. We know that the Frankists uh, uh, underwent all sorts of uh, terrible public sins, all kinds of terrible sexual uh, uh, perversions in public, desecrations of Sifrei Torah, and, uh, and informing on the Jewish community, and all kinds of, as bad as it gets. So it could be that Rabbi Nachman tosses himself into this place, of all places, as he says in a moment that this was his preparation to enter into the land of Israel. Continuing on, Piskabet. Anybody that knows the reason why the land of Israel was first in the hands of the seven Canaanite nations, and then afterwards came to the Jewish people, So Nachman says cryptically, he says, you want to understand why I was in Kamenetz, so you have to understand the secret of why the land of Israel was shut of Zima, 
why the land of Israel was overrun with the sexual perversions of the seven idolatrous nations there, why there was literally not a single hill or tree in the land of Israel that wasn't worshipped as Avodah Zarah. In a sense, Rinachman is telling us the doctrine of Yerida Litzorah Aliyah, which means the following thing, for any person to go ahead and to ascend and to attain a new height, a new perception, a new paradigm, to reach that state, the person has to first go ahead and undergo some sort of a Yerida, some sort of a descent, some sort of a lowering oneself into the pit to avoid whatever it might be, to avoid kitrugim, one might say, to avoid the sense of people looking and seeing a person ascending up a level and saying, who's this person to ascend the level? To, so you have to undergo a sort of uh, a, a sort of degradation. We'll see Rabbi Nachman does this to himself as well in, in shocking fashion. But maybe that might be the sense of descending to this pitiful place, to this terrible place of Kamenetsk and redeeming whatever sparks that he could there, redeeming whatever light that he could there, trying as he could to rectify what had happened there so many years before. And, uh, and that is the sense of Kena'an of the land of Israel. It's like the Jewish people as well evinced in the Zohar that the Jewish people had to be in Mitzrayim, which was the height, uh, Ervas Haaretz, it's called. This was the nakedness of all the land, but it was also quite beautiful. Like we saw in our Shiarim and Eretz Yisrael, that Mitzrayim is likened to Gan Eden, the fertile, the fertile Nile area, uh, the bounty of the Nile, and the wealth and power of Mitzrayim was seen as something that was adjacent to the Kedusha and to the holiness, and to be true, uh, the, the superficial paucity of material riches that Eretz Yisrael has on the surface. So Rinachman says that's the secret of going to Kamenetsk. But remember, we still haven't even begun our journey to the land of Israel. Gimel, next page. Rav Nassim tells us that the travel to Kamenetsk was a great wondrous thing. Everybody said different explanations of it. Everybody said their own understanding why Rabbi Nachman did it. Some people praised it. So you notice over here that as you'll see much of this text, etc., a lot of the text seems to have undergone the hand of the censor. And what it seems to be alluding to is the fact that there was quite some controversy about Rabbi Nachman endangering himself going to this place in the first, uh, it, going to Kamenetsk in the first place. So it seems that this v'chule means that there were people that were already in opposition, as we do see later on in Rabbi Nachman's life, that Rabbi Nachman certainly uh, was the subject of some controversy, and also his followers as well. His, follower, his followers were chased after, his followers did not have it easy, the Toyta Hasidim, the dead Hasidim, after their, uh, they didn't appoint the rabbi after their rabbi died, I, I would say so, uh, just to say a word on Rav Nassim, so mevutal was Rav Nassim to Rav Nachman, even though Rav Nassim basically gives us everything, and knew everything that Rav Nachman said, even his sikhah school, and everything that he could put down on paper for Rav Nachman, uh, so it, it would follow that Rav Nassim should become the person that takes up the mantle after Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman also experienced the loss of children. He had six children, he had a, a young son that passed away, he had a young daughter that passed away. Rav Nachman, as I mentioned before, was a tremendous Baal and suffered immensely, uh, suffered from physical ailments and, and constantly sought to break himself and to break his physical nature. Uh, one assumes that that eventually caught up with Rabbi Nachman as well, broke him as well. But uh, be that as it may, Rabbi Nassim seems to have been the natural fit to take over after Rabbi Nachman. He knew everything, he had all the teachings. However, there was never appointed a successor to Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. So Nachman says, I usually took it via the Mashiach. My fire will last until the coming of the Messiah. And that's indeed the way that it is. That Rabbi Nachman is still, uh, I would say at least for me and uh, many people I know, still as present and still as uh, vibrant as if he would still be alive because of what Reb Nassim did, because of the gift that Reb Nassim gave us of providing to us nearly everything and without 
hiding, uh, even though we do see some sort of uh, acts of censorship here, but really the, 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 the honesty and the directness and the, and the openness to flaws and the discussions of a tzaddik's internal life, we have, no docu- we have very, very few documents like this, especially from a great Hasidic master who knew everything who was able to be Mishalif Torah and Tfil, as we said, who was able to go ahead and to put together the deepest ideas in Kabbalah with the, deep, with, with the most profound open ideas in Torah. Uh, if you read anything in Rabbi Nachman's writings, Likut Maran, there's chains of understanding. This is a Bechin of this, is a Bechin of this. It's such chain, it is such, it is such grace that it finds upon you. Every, every idea in Torah is woven together like pearls, which is part of the project, the exegetical project Rabbi Nachman. But, uh, but be that as it may, what a wondrous thing that Rabbi Nachman and didn't take up the mantle, or that nobody could take up the mantle, but we do see that really everything was given over here, and that Rabbi Nachman was indeed a subject of much controversy. So he says, Rabbi Nachman says, everybody was mistaken, anybody that tried to give reasons behind his journey, they were all mistaken. Even those that prayed, praised Rabbi Nachman for the journey and said he did good. They couldn't understand at all why he did this. Even those who were close to Rabbi Nachman that knew a little because maybe he gave them like a little sort of a hint as to why he went there. They couldn't understand the real reasons behind going there. And Rabbi Nachman already said, and he, he embraced, and we'll see that he does this in a more extreme fashion, Rabbi Nachman embraced the confusion around him. Rabbi Nachman embraced the fact that he wasn't somebody that you could put in a box and easily understand what he was doing. And this drove away people, especially in the beginning where Nachman could have enjoyed a much greater following, a much larger chassidut, especially owing to his lineage. Rabbi Nachman didn't. He pushed away people actively. He hid from people actively. This was Rabbi Nachman's way. He enjoyed to be misunderstood. And this was something he said, um, he said that this was nice. However, if you look in Chaim Aran, besides his, uh, his satisfaction, with people's confusion as to his uh, as to his kavanot, the mysteriousness of his journey. Uh, so in Chaim Oran is an extended um, is an extended discussion of that. Dalit. Ktsas Amru. So we're not even we haven't even begun the journey. We're still at the beginning of the journey. Some people said that he traveled to Kamenetsk to find uh, the writings of his great-grandfather, the Besht, Shesagram Be'evin, that were hidden in some sort of, uh, underneath the stone, in some sort of a safekeeping place. And he said that the hidden writings of the Baal Shem Tov were there in Kamenetsk. That's maybe why he went, to save the writings of his great-grandfather. made fun of the people that gave this reason and said, That's not what I went for. I don't need them. If I wanted those writings, I would have brought them to my house. He doesn't need them at all. So what we see over here is maybe an inkling of another difficult issue with Rabbi Nachman is the issue of Esparos. The issue of Esparos is that in many places, Rabbi Nachman will say things that there was never an of like him before, right? The very Hillel-esque statement, right? Uh, 
that there was never an un of like him before. There's nobody that had this, the humility that he had. These paradoxical statements are best understood within the whole of Rabbi Nachman's corpus, understanding that this is a person who went through profound psychological changes throughout his life. We were told by Rabbi Nassim that Rabbi Nachman would start again and again almost thousands of times in a single day. He would fall, he would get up, he would fall, he would get up. That this was a person whose soul was bouncing, was alive, was on fire, that was constantly experiencing spiritual changes and conscious and reflective of the spiritual changes they'd underwent. An intense self-reflection that sometimes led to a person understanding who they are, understanding what they're about. So in Kanisparis cloud, there's no sort of gaiva here at all. One moment, there's no sort of, uh, God forbid, any arrogance, but this is an individual that, uh, that was very frank and quite honest about what was going on in his internal life because that's what he saw the role of the tzaddik was to share as much as possible with the internal life to bring uh, other people like his uh, great-grandfather, Lassus Yehudim Kamoni, to be tzaddikim just like him. Hi. Who is he referring to? He's referring to the of his great-grandfather's writings. He said, if I wanted them, I would have gotten them. But I didn't. Right? If, if the purpose of his journey was to get the writings of the Baal Shem Tov, what I forgot to say is also uh, that maybe in a sense that uh, we'll see in the journey itself that maybe Reb Nachman sees himself by extension as continuing his great-grandfather's work. We know that the, in the 18th century, towards the end of the 18th century, uh, travel to the land of Israel started to increase. We know that the Baal Shem Tov himself earlier had tried to undergo a journey to the land of Israel, but got stopped in Istanbul. Got stopped in Istanbul and, was, and, and declared, my journey here is over, and was never able to make the journey. In a certain sense, we do see the Rabbi Nachman is maybe, in a sense, spiritually retracing the steps of his great-grandfather. More on that in a moment. We haven't even arrived at Medvedenka. We haven't even gotten to the, uh, to the Black Sea. We're, not, we're nowhere near there yet. But, but that's maybe a sense of spiritual retracing of the trailblazing steps of his great-grandfather as well. But maybe Rabbi Nachman is saying, I don't need the writings of the Baal Shem Tov because the writings, first of all, as we know from our Shirem of the Baal Shem Tov, did the Baal Shem Tov really have any writings? Not really, right? Besides some amulets and besides some inscriptions in a Sidor, most of what we know from the Baal Shem Tov is included, uh, is, is recorded by his students, by the Toldos and by, uh, by his other fellows, by the Magid. So we find that... Uh, so, the writings of the Baal Shem Tov, whatever he might be referring to, is internal. He has that. He has everything that he needs uh, from his great-grandfather within him. Hey, so here we begin in earnest. Be'erev Chag HaPesach, Nas Tov Kuf Nun Hei, 1797. Erev Chag Pesach, Yatsa Mikvah. Reb Nachman got out of the Mikvah, sorry, 1798. He got out of the Mikvah, Shahalach Imo. Yeah, he said to the person, Amr Lezesh al he said to the chassid that was with him, Shebezos Hashana, this year, this year for sure, I am going to be in the land of Israel. And you have to remember, it's no Pashat thing. I was looking at a map. They have a map, uh, there's a special name for these kind of maps that shows different travel times from the center of the world at the time, which is London, right? So the travel times, so we see like, for example, to get from London to Australia takes like 40 days. That's the trip that it took at the end of the, uh, at the I, I believe in the 1850s. So it's almost a, about a little more than a month's journey. So to go in 1798 from... Uh, from from where Rabbi Nachman is from Ukraine, from uh, from from uh, from Poland to get from over there to the Middle East is no simple thing. It involved the travel of many way stations. We're talking a journey of weeks, right? This isn't as simple as going ahead and buying a ticket and going obviously, right? So it's uh, so he says. However, despite that fact, many people are undergoing the journey. They're also already from the second generation of Hasidim from the Tamidim of the Magid. There was already the first Aliyot, the early Aliyot of Hasidim to the land of Israel uh, with Rabbi Nachman. 
Mendel Vitebsk and Rav Avram Kalisker. So there are already Jews that were living in the land of Israel. By this time, the Jewish Yeshuv in the land of Israel had been centralized and localized in Tveria. They had tried to establish themselves in the, in the lower Galil, but were kicked out. They had tremendous trouble and suffering there. And there was indeed a Jewish community in Jerusalem and in Hebron at the time as well. So those were, the, uh, those were the Jewish communities. One other thing to keep in mind is that at this time is the beginning of the Napoleonic Wars reaching the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. So we have the storms of war on the horizon as well. Continuing, so he said, Pesach, he says he got out of the mikvah and he said to his chas that was with him, the Shimon, this year for sure I'm going to be in Israel. And Chad Pesach, he said Torah on the following Pesach, which comes from Tilim. Your path will be through the stormy waters, the turbulent waters, and your footsteps will not be known. And he asked questions from beginning to end on this. And he resolved all the questions that he asked about this Pesach of traveling through mighty waters. And through expounding upon this Torah, traveling through the waters, so he explained, by this you should know that I'm going to be making it to the land of Israel. So fixated was Rabbi Nachman at this point with his need to travel to Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi Nachman at this time is 26 years old. He's 26 years old and one might get a sense, we'll talk about the reasons, right? Four major reasons given Rabbi Nachman's works for the journey with one overarching teaching that comes from it. But we'll talk about what exactly might motivate him, but let's just say right now that certainly on a, uh, on a basic level, Rabbi Nachman probably feels that there's a level that he needs to attain, there's the Chachma Ilah of the land of Israel, the higher wisdom, the more supernal wisdom that we talked about, the Avir of Eretz Yisrael HaMachkima, the enlightening air of the land of Israel that Rabbi Nachman somehow feels is necessary for the next step in his spiritual development, obviously so crucial for a person who is so constantly conscious of his own spiritual development, he decides Come what may, this is what I need to do. When I read this, let's do one more, uh, one more paragraph and then I'll tell you something that I think might be going on. I think I experienced a little bit of this uh, together with uh, my fellow students in Yeshiva University many years ago uh, in a contemporary fashion. I'll tell you what I mean in a moment. Vav. So here's a, a difficult section of the story because we see Rabbi Nachman adopting a little bit of a cruelty towards his family. And we see Rabbi Nachman maybe dealing with what he perceives to be the first menia, the menias, the obstacles in his journey. Rabbi Nachman has made up his mind. He's decided this is what I need. This is how I'm going to come close to God. This is part of my life's mission. We'll see in a moment that he's almost willing to risk his life. He's conscious of the risk to his life by undergoing the mission. Rabbi Nachman sees his family's objections to his journey, which contained uh, the real danger that something might befall him on the journey. He sees that as his first mania, as his first obstacle. Listen to what he says. When Rabbi Nachman's wife heard this, she sent their daughter to him to ask, How could you leave us? Who's going, to, who's going to sustain us? Who's going to support us? He said, You're going to go to your in-laws. You'll help, uh, in, um, you'll help in somebody's house. You'll be like a nurse and a maid. Your younger sister. Somebody will have mercy on her. So your mother, my wife, will be a chef. And somebody says, Everything, I'm going to sell everything in order to support my journey. This is the harshest language, right? It's very difficult. 
difficult for us to understand. I don't want to make, I don't want to make small light. I don't want to make a, a, a small issue of that. It's very difficult. But uh, be that as it may, with hindsight, we see the Rav Nachman indeed, uh, to a certain degree, despite the pain he's causing to his family right now, is vindicated. By dint of the journey, by dint of the fact that we're reading of the journey. I know this is a difficult concept, right? But we're reading of this journey in 2018 that means that, in a sense, Rav Nachman was correct in what he was saying. Now, it's very, that's a super difficult concept because, you know, we could see all the time people doing things. How does anybody know? Did Rabbi Nachman really know how everything would work out? Whatever it was, Rabbi Nachman was certain that this was a journey he needed to undertake, that this was chiuni, was life or death for him to, to not go. And, uh, and difficult decisions towards his family needed to be made. At the end, though, I do think that Rabbi Nachman's decision, not that my gespanka, my stamp of approval is needed at all. We can leave it as a tamir, we can leave it as a difficult thing. It doesn't diminish the pain of his family, but Rabbi Nachman is vindicated uh, by, by the very virtue of the fact that we're reading about this preserved, that this became the decisive factor in his own spiritual development. But this is difficult to read about for anybody that loves their family, and surely Rabbi Nachman did. Rabbi Nachman talks about the death of his children, uh, that it was, it was Kimat, his own death. So this is not a person that had cruelty to his own family. Adraba is a person who loved his family very deeply and he sees himself in a spiritual sense as dealing with his first minia, his first great obstacle, and he has to get through this. And it comes, maybe the most difficult obstacle of all, the, from the first step of the journey, comes right at the very beginning from the love and overcoming the love for his own family. That's, I guess, what I'll say about that particular part of the story. Kasher Shamuzos Beso when they heard, Go Kulam everybody cried, and they mourned and wept for a number of days. But he couldn't find himself to have compassion at this point. It's impossible without doing this. Come what may, I need to go. I feel like I'm already there. He says, if my own soul is already in Eretz Yisrael, I'm just dragging my body along to meet it in Eretz Yisrael. That's where Nachman sees it. <coughs> Amr Bazal Lashon, wherein the gerest health, wherein the geresti health is shoin dart vichule. So he says, Hayoz Shachetia Gadolk Farsham, because majority of myself is there. I need to go to the land of Israel. I know the obstacles that are going to stand in my way. I'm aware of how dangerous and how fraught a journey is, and I'm aware of what sacrifices are going to be made in my getting there. <coughs> It's going to be impossible to imagine. So long as I'm alive, so long as my soul is within my body, so long as I have the breath of life in my nostrils, I'm going to give everything, I'm going to totally self-sacrifice to get there. So long as my soul is within me, I'll travel there Vashem and God. We see over here is the doctrine of we do our ishtadlus, we do our part, and the rest we go We toss the rest on the Kaddish Baruch We say Kaddish Baruch is not just with the travel to the land of Israel. And here you get the twinkling a little bit of what the point, maybe I think, the major teaching of the whole journey itself was, is that in life, and this is a foreshadowing in life, we do, especially in the service of God, we do as much as we can. We have so many things that prevent us from accomplishing what we want to do. It's Whether it's parnasa, whether it's family relationships, whether it's health, whether it's the way our lives have turned out, whether it's our own uh, hang-ups or personal difficulties or the way, whatever gifts we were given or not given by God. Whenever we have all these things, so the goal of a Jewish person is to say, Hashem, I'm giving you what I've got. 
All I could say is I've done my piece. Now, God, you have to do your piece. Hashem atov bein of Yasa. God, what's good in your eyes, you're going to go ahead and do. Um, in uh, about 15 years ago, there was a series of books that were extremely popular um, called Bilvavi Mishkan Evne. The author was anonymous, but clearly uh, some sort of a genius. And uh, it, it also, it's important to remember, thousands of sparum come out every year. So what, what kind of a safer merits to gain such popularity? I guess having Ramosha Weinberger be your champion for that kind of a safer and teaching in a shul uh, will help a lot in popularizing it uh, to an English-speaking audience. But the Bilvavi Sparum became a runaway uh, popular safer. Uh, seemed to include deep psychological insights. Then there were further commentaries on Mesilat Yesharim. And then there was uh, Kabbalistic works as well. There was a, um, a whole library developed by an anonymous author. Eventually, the author revealed himself, became known as, a, his name was Rabbi Itamar Schwartz. Now he's known as the Bilvavi. And, uh, and everybody was uh, amazed that this individual finally revealed himself after a year or two that they were in pub- publication, circulation. So then word came, you know, in uh, YU, they put up these posters on the side, you know, somebody special is coming. Saravita Schwartz is coming. He's not going to be, spe- he's going to be speaking the old base medrash. Um, so, you know, hundreds of people show up and we're getting ready to hear Torah from this mysterious, amazing, genius figure uh, who everybody wants to know and see. So he shows up, he has this blonde uh, beard and this very tired look on his face, world-weary look on his face. And we're getting ready for like the greatest dach we've ever heard, Divrei Lokim Chaim, one of your amazing things. And Schwartz gets up, and I remember this quite vividly. And he almost finds it difficult to speak in the beginning. Finally, he begins to open up his mouth, and he starts, and he's, you know, a Haredi appearance completely. Appearances are nothing, but just to give you a sense of the image, right? It's a black hat and, and uh, black and white garb, and, uh, and all he talked about. He basically said the same thing for the next 25 minutes, and he came, out, came to crying as he was saying it. I don't care what your answers are. I don't care what your excuses are. Make Aliyah. Make Aliyah. He said, come to Israel. Come to Israel. It got like uncomfortable because we were expecting, like, when's he going to, okay, like, you know, rabbis sometimes, like, they have to, they have like, you know, mysterious uh, ways of introducing their classes. When's the Dvar That was all he said. Make Aliyah. People came to him afterwards, you know, Rabbi, can you explain this? Make Aliyah. It's all he said the whole night. It was, it, was the most, um, it was the most incredible thing, but I think that maybe he was kind of tapping into what Nachman felt over here. There comes a certain stage in a person's religious development, if you believe it this much, that the only place that the continuation of the religious development could be is in Eretz Yisrael. Right? That's a difficult concept because we have very many people that fully developed, we would, we would understand spiritually uh, outside, of course, in Chutzlarts throughout history. But what Rabbi Schwartz was communicating is, I think, maybe in, in essence, that this strange encounter that we had with the author of the Bilvavi, that uh, the hundreds of us are sitting there waiting for Dvar Torah, and all we hear is, make Aliyah. I don't care what your excuses are. Get, get on the next plane, make Aliyah. Right? Parnat, all that stuff. Ridiculous. Just go, make Aliyah. And it was so shocking to us, but maybe that's the single-minded sense that for spiritual growth, that for spiritual uplift, that that's where a person has to go to be close to God. If it's there, if it's possible, there are no excuses to make Aliyah. Now, of course, I'm availing myself of every excuse in the book. I'm just reporting what he said. But that's, uh, but that's what I think the Rabbi Nachman is communicating over here. The single-minded focus in the land of Israel. This is where I have to go. Yashar El. I have to go directly to this place. That's, that's, uh, that's this idea. No matter what, Minios Rikuvim. And Atshem Atov of Yasa. God will do what he sees right in his eyes. So I, uh, I wrote over here in, uh, in my version. I said, me, making Aliyah is impractical. It's hard to know what I'll do in Eretz Yisrael. 
Well, Rabbi Nachman says like this, Ve'amar, he says, and every step of my journey to the land of Israel, Yeli, turning the page, Yeli Mesiris Nefesh, I am going, God bless you, I am going to give my soul for every step of the journey to the land of Israel. I want to go immediately. I can't wait. Even without any money whatsoever. I anybody that wants to have mercy on me. They can go ahead and support my journey. But I'm going. It doesn't matter. So people, this close band of followers came. They they got together a certain sum of money. At least Rabbi Nachman could have a little bit to leave his house. Right? It was very difficult to travel. His chassidim saw there's no way whatsoever that we could go ahead and prevent this individual from going on his journey. So he might as well support his family and at least give him a little bit to take him on the journey. He left immediately quickly from his house on the 18th of Iyar. So this is the chassid, Shimon that travels along with him, and he came along on the journey. He traveled from his house, Mikilas Kodesh Medvedivka, he traveled from Medvedivka, Leir Nikolaev, he traveled from there, Visham Haya Spina Vorchitim. They got on a barge that was carrying wheat. Vinasa im Osa Spina Derech Adem. They traveled through the Ural Sea. Kimikodem Hayuam Shulach Visharnashim Yereim Lizoa Derech Adem. Ah, so Adem is the town of Galanti. There was a fear to travel. Uh, Sorry, most Jews, when they left the journey to go to the land of Israel, so they left from the port of Odessa. And this time, Rabbi Nachman was leaving from the town of Galanti. There had been a pogrom in the area. So Rabbi Nachman chooses to go for a different way. It was very dangerous to travel by sea there. Rabbi Nachman understood immediately. So he decided if we travel through Galatz, so we'll avoid, uh, our journey will be shorter, even though it's dangerous because of the pogroms that had nearly wiped out the Jewish community in Galati, which was on the, uh, the Chof, which was on the coast of Romania. This is Rabbi Nachman's choosing a different, strange, shorter, but more dangerous path to get to Istanbul, to Istanbul. So we're going to end probably with this, uh, with this larger section, and that's, uh, that will be the first, part of our, uh, the first part of our discussion, Rabbi Nachman's journey. He told the person who was with him to buy a lot of paper and a lot of ink. At this time, Rabbi Nachman began to write copious amounts of Torah, of Torah ideas. And he warned this person, don't look at anything I'm writing. The person said, okay. He believed him. And he gave him his key to open up the desk. When they left, many people uh, saw them off. There are 
many wagons, just like this week's parsha. And they traveled along with him with song, with uh, partying, and with great joy and mirth. When they got on the boat, and got onto the Black Sea. Take of me eight eight rishon haya pritna gedola. There was the high nuruah sar. There was a great storm. The first of the storms that happened. The waves started to go onto the boat. They had to hide in one of the cabins because of the waters. And that they wouldn't get soaked or cast overboard. There was thunder, lightning, a great wind. That couldn't be imagined. And everybody was quite afraid at this terrible storm that had started up on the Black Sea. Nobody could go ahead and sleep that night. So you might see already over here, as the journey begins in earnest, there are constant biblical echoes throughout the journey of Rabbi Nachman. And the truth is, is that Rabbi Nachman testifies uh, at one of the most dangerous points of the journey that this is one of the essential key elements that Rabbi Nachman wants to experience through his journey to the land of Israel, experiencing the Torah the way that the Avos, the way that the patriarchs and matriarchs experience the Torah. That is a Torah that is above mitzvahs. That is a Torah that is not confined to the 613, to the Taryag mitzvos, that's not confined to the way that we understand mitzvos in a practical sense, but the idea and the concept behind all the mitzvos. There's a famous Kedushas Levi that talks about this in Parshas Lech Lecha, that we talk about Avravinu Kim as Kola Torah Kula, Kola Mitzvah, Avravinu kept the entire Torah, Ad Shlo Nitna, before it was even given Chazal, said Afilu Eruve Chatzeros, even Eruve Chatzeros, the Avravinu was able to keep, and we said, how did Avram know? He hadn't received the Torah yet, so we say, Avram knew from his kishkas that there was an instinctual connection to the Torah. There was an instinctual connection to God that happened. And through that, a person through cognating and thinking about it, internalizing the message, was able to do it to himself. So the biblical echoes start to become stronger and stronger as the journey continues. As Rabbi Nachman seeks a, a knowledge and an understanding of his, um, of his, uh, of our patriarchs and matriarchs, which is going to be part of the journey to land of Israel. Of course, maybe we see echoes of the lech lecha, the primordial go for yourself. We see Rabbi Nachman certainly going for himself. Lech lecha, as Rashi says, le'atzmecha, b'shvil atzmecha. For yourself, Rabbi Nachman is doing this for himself, but in order to do something to affect a much larger spiritual change. I skipped out before, Rabbi Nachman describes going through the waters. The Pasuk they quote is a strange choice of Pasuk, because if the goal is to travel to the land of Israel, the Pasuk that I would, there's many Pesukim that you could quote that talk about journeying to the land of Israel. Why pick a Pasuk that just talks about traveling through the sea? So maybe that's our first hint that Rabbi Nachman sees the prime spiritual value in this whole, in this whole trip and everything described here in the journey itself in the travels itself that he's taking not necessarily in the arrival the arrival he says that's up to God whatever happens is up to God we'll see he does strange things once he gets to Eretz Yisrael um I'll give it away Rabbi Nachman says after his first days there he's there for Rosh Hashanah okay I'm ready to go I'm ready to go. Even though we could give other reasons why he was supposed to be there, there are places that he wanted to go to. Uh, Rabbi Nachman, after the first Rosh Hashanah he spends there, 
okay, I'm finished, ready, let's get back to on the boat, let's go back to, uh, let's go back to where we came from. Which is so strange because one might assume one of the reasons Renachman stated of traveling to land was to go to Tveria. And Tveria is where his grandfather, a Talmud of, uh, of the Baal Shem Tov, Rav Nachman Vharadenka, is buried in Tveria. And one assumes that just as Rav Nachman talks about in his youth, traveling to the grave of his great-grandfather and davening by the grave of the Baal Shem Tov Mezhbush and going ahead and fasting and going into the mikvah, that he want to experience the same communion with his grandfather, however Rav Nachman gets the land of Israel. Okay, we don't need to go to Tveria. He's even offered in the story to go to Tveria. He says, no, we don't have to until they beg him. Rav Avram Kalisker in the community begs him to go there. One other thing that we know, the Rav, Rav Nassim tells us that earlier on in Rabbi Nachman's life when he was young, so what he would do is he would get himself on a boat and he would go on one of the local rivers and he would uh, find himself very quickly, he was unable to swim, so he would find himself very quickly cast adrift and there he, in a sakana, putting himself in a danger, he would daven and daven and daven until HaKadosh Baruch Hu would save him. And this is what he would do in his youth and he would have this moment he would arouse this tremendous pacha, this tremendous existential fear of death and through that he would accomplish tremendous tefillot a tremendous sense of communion with God through prayers for one's own life uh, not recommended I, uh, <laughs> safe to say but uh, also, uh, also seemingly uh, an antinomian practice as well. We're not allowed to put ourselves in those kinds of places of sakana. Rinachman has his own cheshbonos. It's not up to us to try and figure it out for him. It's up to us to learn after he's done it for us. But in a sense, now as an adult, now as uh, 26 years old, he's doing this in a much bigger way. This is the young Rav Nachman getting on the canoe, going out onto the great rivers, crossing over the Yam, and without looking at his footsteps behind him is the Pasuk from Tillam that he quoted. We just have a few more minutes. I want to finish a little bit more. So what happens on the trip? So after four days, they come to Istanbul, Vyashval Asfar, and they, uh, they, they rested at the port. They didn't know what house to go into. They couldn't tell the difference uh, between Jew or, uh, or Arab. And they couldn't ask They didn't know their language. <coughs> When they were seen sitting by the port, by the docks, they found the translator, that knew our language, so he knew Yiddish, I guess, and he was able to go ahead, or German, he was able to go ahead and to act as an intermediary. And they found a place to dwell, an inn in the town, a section called Galita. <clears throat> so it's sad because we see Rabbi Nachman is constantly on the move. He says, I don't want to stay in this place. I don't want to be here. So the, the individual that was with them and helping them, their fixer said to them, Do you guys prefer to be in the center of the city itself? In the capital section? That that's where the Turkish ruler was? Nobody could go there except males. So it sounds like Rav Nachman talks about Tutula the Arka. Rav talks about Tutula the Arka. That the dangers, especially uh, the sexual dangers that might exist on a journey. Perhaps this Rav Nachman wants to be in a place. He understands that this is a place, this inn, this area of town is already like an unsafe place from a spiritual perspective. Certainly not uh, conducive to the rest of his journey, to what he's seeking out. So he says, take us to the, uh, to the center where the king is, where the ruler is, where only males are allowed to enter. And they were told that there was a shlucha de Rabbanan. Uh, just a piece of trivia. Who's the most famous shlucha de Rabbanan of all time? I think the Chida. 
Chida, the Rav Chida, Chaim Yosef David Azulai was one of the greatest shlich of the Rabbanim people that were sent from the land of Israel to go ahead and to raise funds for the Yishuv in the land of Israel. As we talked about to go ahead and they would travel to Europe. The Chida, for example, during his travels to Europe was able to enter into some of the greatest libraries and catalog the great works. That's how we have the works of the Chida, like Shema Gedolim. So there was over here a shluch of the Rabbanim, a, a shliach, right? We're used to that. There was a shliach, somebody that was looking uh, to raise funds. The imamot shnei anashim imidina seinu, and with them were, old, were another two people from our country, Shayub Eretz Yisrael. They had been in the land of Israel. Vachshavim chosim leves avanosim Eretz Yisrael. They're returning home. They're traveling from Eretz Yisrael to Chutzlaretz. The kasher shamazos. And when we when they heard this, Amar huzechron v'rachal isha nal shayimo ani masirat chach levalid tigaleoti klal. I'm telling you, come what may. Do not reveal my identity. So there was, so they get to the center of the city. There's this great shliach, there's a, who must have had to be a learned individual who's on his way to Russia to, together with two other individuals to go ahead and raise funds. And Rinachman recognizes the first person that they might come in contact with. Again, perhaps another menia. And Rinachman also sees another opportunity to go himself uh, to foreshadow a little bit for next week. Um, I'll speak about next week in a moment. Uh, Rabbi Nachman sees an opportunity to go ahead and to also go undergo a certain kind of yurida, to undergo a certain type, and this is going to be by far one of the stranger sections in the story itself. As it's starting to heat up, we've only seen the introduction. Rabbi Nachman says, and we'll finish with this line, Ani I'm warning you. Leval don't reveal my identity at all. No matter what, no matter who asks, don't say what my identity is. And uh, from there, they go into the city and they have their first encounters with the Shlucha de Rabbanim, with this rabbi from the land of Israel and his followers. And the story starts to heat up and starts to get much more uh, uh, filled with, uh, with events and characters and figures as the Rabbi Nachman draws closer and closer to the land of Israel, which we shall continue with.